Financial Finance Podcast. Today, very excited to welcome Sophie Mayer Raleigh, who is a venture capitalist at Adrills. Good evening, Sophie. Hi, thank you, Norbert, for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited for this conversation. And we've got a super interesting career path so across three continents. You started off and were born and raised in Paris. And from then on, you've been like everywhere. You're highly educated. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what drove the different steps that you've taken. I came to Japan this January and I have been working with Eight Roads, which is a global VC forum with office in UK, China, India and Japan. And I'm a member of the fintech team, and uh, I also look at AI startups. This is not my first time in VC. After my MBA, I worked also at InnoSpark Ventures, which is an early stage VC based in Boston that invests in AI startups. And uh, as you mentioned, I've been quite a bit everywhere. So I'm originally from France, but I also studied in the UK, in London, and in Boston as well at MIT. This is where I actually met the MIT Digital Currency Initiative. And then I also worked in Japan for three years with EY before going to Boston and then coming back very recently. I think that I'm very passionate about discovering new places and cultures. So for me, it was always drove me towards Asia. And then I think in the U.S., there's just so much innovation that um, I really wanted to be able to study there and work there to learn more about what makes this country so amazing in terms of teamwork and leadership and so on. That's a bit about me. <laughs> Your original degree is on finance and accounting and your trained accountant, which of course is a fantastic foundation for business in general to understand the financial accounts couldn't be any better basis, but it isn't quite getting the same reaction as when you say I'm a venture capitalist. <laughs> so people get much more excited about this. So what drove you to accounting in the first place and why did you change from there? Personally, I was very interested in finance and accounting in general as I studied in France and UK and I thought that becoming uh, able to learn from a business from the finance standpoint, analyzing the business viability and contributing through better learning about how finance works would be very interesting. In addition to that, my family has an accounting consulting business in Paris. And one of the key questions was, should I take over in the long term? And so I had sort of a lot of family pressure to choose that path to get an accounting license so that uh, I could, uh, if anything happens, you know, take over the reign of consulting business. But then I made my own road and I realized I'm much more interested in technology and innovation and strategies. So after about four or five years in EY, I decided to do an MBA and learn about different career options and was very interested in, in startup tech as well as VC. But I really realized about VC through my two years at MIT, as everyone was very interested in building their own startup. I also started with the idea of building something and, and managed to discuss with many VCs. And so this was actually at the intersection of finance, which is what I was doing before, and technology and strategy. So I felt that this would be a very interesting road to consider. Have you chosen MIT or Sloan Business School in this case, specifically because there's such a technical foundation and you wanted to get more of the technical exposure during your MBA as well? 
Yes, that's a great question. I've always wanted to be an engineer and I love mathematics. So for me, I haven't ever coded before going to MIT and I saw MIT was the best place to one, learn how to code in Python, learn about AI and be very hands-on. And uh, the second reason is that because they're such a huge innovation ecosystem, the entrepreneurship center over there, Martin Trust Entrepreneurship Center is really home to a lot of businesses coming out of there and MIT. MIT 100K competition as well, or MIT Delta V. So it's quite famous for that, while other, I guess, MBAs were maybe not as hands-on in terms of their entrepreneurship ecosystems. I did some Python course and I was in the undergrad classes and I coded like 10 hours a week on like very simple stuff like building a hangman or sometimes I also join uh, classes like um, the analytics edge which really teaches you about when should you do a logistic regression or what is a random forest and why would that be good to apply it in a business setting so more about business analytics basically it was very interesting training and uh, without the need to have prerequisites in both cases so I really enjoyed my experience in MIT. I can imagine. And then, of course, MIT also has a digital currency initiative. And one of the triggers for us to talk today is that while you were at MIT, you wrote an academic paper that got published now. So congratulations to that. And it's again, it's as you described, it's a combination of using technology that's also being researched at MIT and then actually applying it to real use case. Or even, I think, as the paper describes it, the other way around, figuring out what is actually the business problem first and then see what technology matches. The paper there's lots to unpack, especially for people who are not that deep in technology or blockchain. But let's describe it at a high level first. The paper is about the application of zero-knowledge technology, which is a privacy-preserving solution to enable digital ledger technology in the securitization market. Public blockchain and private blockchains have limitation currently public blockchain, they are, unfortunately, everything is visible on the chain. And private blockchains, they have several limitations. And one of them is that you are able to hide things, but the person who wants to double check things cannot publicly verify the data. So it's either completely masked or it's not. But in any case, it's very difficult in those chains to have both the supply side and the demand side on the same chain. So you wouldn't be able to build a marketplace for these reasons because you cannot have competitors on the same chain. With this zero-knowledge proof technology, we are able to have participants that are distrusting, they do not trust each other, to be able to transact on the same chain and perform mass analytics. So anonymized analytics on hidden data. So we're trying to apply this to the securitization market. That's what I talk about in the paper, where this can really power cases such as a price discovery, liquidity discovery, being able to understand the risk exposure or tracking the ownership of a collateral throughout the chain through this technology. 
So when I heard zero knowledge proof for the first time, which was quite a few years ago now, I think the way it was explained to me was the classic case of you want to get into a bar and you want to prove that you're drinking age. So the process that happens today is you need to take out your ID and show it. And so by doing so, you're disclosing much more information than is necessary. You're disclosing your full birth date. And what the zero knowledge proof does is it gives you the response without disclosing that data. So the question simply is, are you drinking age? The response would be yes, based on the hidden information, but the information itself stays private. That kind of stuck in my head as maybe one of the simplest explanation of what's going on there. Yes, exactly. Uh, I agree with that. So yeah, zero knowledge proof means that one person, the prover, will prove that a statement is correct, is true to another person, the verifier, without revealing additional information except that assertion. And how do you do that? So there is one way I, I like to explain it is you have Alice and Bob and two balls, one red and one green. Let's say that Bob is colorblind and Alice wants to prove to Bob that those balls are red and green, but without him being able to see. So without him being able to prove just by looking at it. So the way this can be proven is by having Bob hide the two balls behind his back and swapping them sometime and showing them to Alice. He will ask Alice, did I swap them? If those balls are in the same color, then it will be very difficult for Alice to guess. She will not know if the balls were swapped or not. But if they are actually different colors, then she will be able to guess accurately 100% of the time that these balls are, were swapped or not. And so Bob, through this test, can actually assume that Alice knows the answer if she doesn't make any mistake. So that's one way of explaining what zero knowledge is about. As you mentioned, this can have potential application for ID documentation, for the government as well. And now it's used also in Zcash in blockchain for really uh, hiding uh, the transaction amounts or the parties transacting on the, on the chain and giving full anonymity to participants. And so with your paper, you specifically looked at securitization market. That means asset-backed securities, which can be auto loans, credit card loans, mortgages, which would be then a huge market of mortgage-based securities. And if I recall correctly, I think the total market size you described as 10 trillion US dollars in securitized loans in this way. And comparing that to wherever we are today, Bitcoin is 200 billion, right? So it's it's a market size that is, significant. And so if you can have an impact with advanced technology on the efficiency of this market and possibly growing this market, that obviously would be fantastic. Coming back to the business problem, what problem are you going to solve with your approach? The ABS market was one of the key markets I wanted to look at because in general, I was interested in the financial market because these are where privacy is very important for blockchain. It's a very analog market over the counter where people tend to transact on the phone or through chat rooms. And it's not like the stock market where everything has been already quite real time. In the asset-backed security market, there is a huge problem of the lack of timeliness of the information provided to the market, especially to investors. 
and the lack of transparency, which led to the financial crisis, for example, for the MBS market mainly and the subprime crisis. With this technology, what we're trying to do is to enable everyone to join the same blockchain. Through that, people will be able to participate in transaction without the need for siloed database. They will not need a reconciliation. And what's happening, interviewing um, some trading desk in the IBS market, some issuers and, and the lawyers, the big issue is that right now the servicers are not providing the data in a standardized way. And there can be also a lag time when a consumer pays a loan. And this can get maybe two weeks or more delayed before the investor gets notification in the reports. And those reports are then scanned and the investor needs to do a lot of standardization and data analytics to be able to make their investment decisions. So it takes time and a high degree of expertise. And it's also subject to a lot of operational errors. And also regulators have this issue that they need to really make sure that the data is correct. So this also takes time in terms of reviewing the information. You also have the rating agencies that have misaligned incentive with investors and are very close to the issuer. Those misaligned incentive and the lack of transparency leads really to an asymmetry of information that we're trying to solve with ZKIBS. We're trying to provide the market with timely analytics while preserving the privacy of the data. Right now, other blockchain, about 49% of enterprise surveyed mentioned that security and privacy are the key issues. And so they are not able to bring both the issuer, the servicer, and the investors inside the same blockchain. With this, what we're trying to solve is we're aiming to have the investor and SPV, the issuer, the servicer, all on the same plane so that investors will be able to only see aggregated data and analytics. They will be able to perform some risk exposure calculation and different metrics, KPIs that they usually uh, use. While they won't be able to see the transaction data at the loan level so that the issuer individual loans or information is preserved. So that's what we're trying to do in, in a brief uh, way. <laughs> The technology that you're using, this CK Ledger, is technology that comes out of MIT's Digital Currency Initiative. Exactly. So the underlying technology was developed by Nehan Arula and Madhaz Visra and Willy Vasquez, who built this system, which is quite novel, called ZK Ledger. It's a universally agreed upon ledger with all participants in the ledger joining the same ledger. What's very different from other ledgers is that anyone can join, but they will only be able to see aggregated data and perform analytics, but they won't be able to see the data in plain text. So ZK Ledger is leveraging Pedersen commitments to do that, which is not a new technology. It's from the 1990s. What Pedersen commitment do is that they are a technique that allows homomorphic encryption where you can actually have, for example, let's say we know three amounts, A, B, and C, and the sum is 100. These commitments allow you to prove that the sum is 100 without knowing what is A, B, and C using the property of the discrete logarithm. This system that was very innovative, developed at the Media Lab at the DCI, has this property that it can actually run those analytics on hidden data. 
And we're bridging that in the securitization market where actually those investors that invest in these securities are currently not able to perform real-time analytics. And if they were to get information from the issuer directly without verifying themselves, those would still be real-time, but they wouldn't be able to prove the accuracy of the information. So this really allows you to preserve privacy while being able to do those real-time analytics. Excellent. And so the geeky listeners among us probably already itching to hear which protocol it runs on. Is there a specific blockchain protocol that this will be implemented on? Actually, this is very flexible. And in this paper, we did not focus on that, but it could be run on the Hyperledger, it could be run on Bitcoin, on Ethereum, on the other chain. And the key goal is also to promote interoperabilities. I know a lot of chains right now are trying to work on that. And that's one of the key hurdles of having a private blockchains, permission blockchains. In the example that we give in the paper, we're talking about permission blockchain. And that's really because not everyone should be included in a ABS trading desk, I think. This is a really one use case, which is a financial service uh, industry. And it's not really like a, we need to have everyone transact on that blockchain. The permissioned ledger was best case, but it could be run by a third party or it could be run by a consortium, which would then be the, the participants themselves managing who can write, who can read, who can append uh, new loans to the ledger. In our case, we give the example where the SPV and the servicer would have the writing rights, while the reading rights would be investors, the rating agencies, and the regulators. Similar to the public-private ledger discussion, I think you made a differentiation on interactive versus non-interactive zero-knowledge proofs. Yours is in the interactive type, correct? Exactly. So with the interactive solution, the verifier needs to send a request to the prover and the prover will need to accept or reject the request. The non-interactive would be you don't need to have the prover accepting or, or rejecting. This proof will be uh, generated in advance and you could pre-run everything. The limitation with that is then you could run so many times the queries that you would be able to guess the transaction graph. You would be able to guess what was the last transaction by systematically, you know, running, running, running the items. So we preferred having uh, something which is a bit more close to the real life example where actually investor will have communication with the issuer or the servicer to get the information. In that case, the investor would build their own queries and then ask the prover to accept the query and provide the information. In theory, both would be possible. And in, for example, Zcash using ZKSNARKs, this is actually a non-interactive uh, protocol. And so for the similar reason, you also go for near real-time rather than full real-time updates on the chain. Because if you get full real-time updates, you also be able to reconstruct what really has changed. Secondly, depending on the asset that you're actually securitizing, real-time might or might not make sense. For credit card, it might make sense. For auto loans that have maybe two payment dates in the month or so, it would be much less useful as well. The idea of real-time is what everyone wants to get to, but it has some privacy leaks. So we need to really understand what do we mean by real time in a way that can still preserve privacy. And that's really depending on the transaction frequency.
for transacting every two weeks, such as like a credit card payments where you can have like payments every two weeks or it, it could be every month, then the near real time should be two weeks. So we're introducing this concept just to make sure we're not, you know, over-promising or also on, on the benefit of the technology. I think this is an ongoing space where there will be more advancement going forward, more progress, and hopefully we can find a solution to have a complete real-time uh, information in the future. So how would you see this developing, changing the customs, the age-old processes in an industry is always a hard thing to do. What would it take to actually implement this? I think that in order to implement this, there will be a need for a consortium to run the ledger. And that could also be a a third party. It it doesn't need to be run by a consortium per se. And for that to happen, I think the issuer would be really the key initiator of the initiative, I think. And I've seen in China, for example, Baidu or JD Finance doing some very interesting launch of uh, ABS on blockchain. If ZKL ABS or other type of this technology could actually emerge, this would be really the key actor to gather investors and start the marketplace. I know that there are other initiatives going on using zero-knowledge proofs, such as Ernst Young working on uh, Nightfall, which is a zero-knowledge proof-based protocol that is built on top of Ethereum. And so for audit, this can also have a lot of uh, advantages because you can do real-time audit and you can really preserve privacy because these are things that even investors, speaking with lawyers, investors do not want to get the loan-level data. And same with auditors, they might not want to read everything. They just want to focus on specific analytics. I saw that this has been also quite an interesting initiative. And I think also another initiative to be excited on is Corda. They are a private consortium and, and they already have a lot of banks part of the consortium. So I see a lot of startups uh, leveraging Corda because of this uh, network effect of having already <laughs> counterpart to build a POC, for example. So I think this is really an interesting uh, area under development. And uh, really in order to make this happen, there needs to be issuer to be able to to have this initiative to to launch this. Let's switch to the venture capital side. So as you explained in the introduction, you started this when you were in Boston still, and then you came back to Japan. I think you also talked a bit about the motivation. What drove you from Boston back to Japan in the first place? And how did you find Eight Roads or did Eight Roads find you? I was very interested in uh, coming back to Japan because I thought that um, this was really a very interesting ecosystem. The startup space was still very nascent there. So I always had in my mind, I would like to come back and contribute to the entrepreneurship ecosystem over here. I think that the reason also why I stayed in Boston was also because I had this opportunity to work at the InnoSpark Ventures, which is a great fund that uh, is quite small. It's about five people, but um, they are very dynamic and very expert, I would say, in AI and serial entrepreneurship. It was really uh, an honor for me to be part of the team. The partner, Venkat, has built his startup in AI and had also a CPA background. So uh, we had a sort of a lot in common and I, I really wanted to learn a lot from 
him and this journey was really amazing for this past uh, couple of years. I'm really happy that I stayed in Boston and then when I came back to Japan, I felt that I learned a lot from the US, but it was also time to pursue what I was very interested in, which is uh, helping the Japanese ecosystem. And the AidWords team, I've met them two years ago, so I, I knew them quite well and was very excited about the team and what they're looking at in terms of being a growth stage VC. And in early stage VC, you look a lot at team, you look at the market size, but I had no idea about what does a growth stage VC before joining. And I learned a lot about product market fit and unit economy, scaling and exit valuation and so on. So in the end, I am very grateful that I was able to see, you know, both the early stage thing and the, and the growth stage. What have you seen so far? And given that the scene is also so nascent, as you described, you actually need to search for the startup. <laughs> where do you look and where do you find them? Personally, I'm very thesis driven. So I have some prior background in AI and in fintech. So I tend to look at these two areas and we have also a great fintech team within AdWords. So we work together on finding opportunities. When we look at startups, of course, we go to events and the other VCs introductions, but we also look at the fintech association and, the, and see who are the members. We also look at databases and, and so on to really be able to capture the whole ecosystem. What we aim to do is really to meet everyone and to build a long-term relationship. For example, we have a portfolio company, PayD, that we invested in, but before we invested, you knew them for several years. And so in growth stage, it's very important to build long-term relationship. That's how we spend our time sourcing investment and, and meeting not just growth stage, but also early stage entrepreneurs. Where do you see some excitement in the Japanese market? The AI market is quite interesting. I think that uh, only 5% of companies surveyed in recent survey have mentioned they adopted AI. We see a lot of logos about AI adoption here and there, but it really feels like we're five years or 10 years behind sometimes what other startups in Boston have been doing from my personal experience. Well, the key learning is that there are a lot of bottlenecks and one of them is that people don't understand what AI can do for you. But what is AI ROI or where should I apply AI? Which part of my business? This lack of awareness is one of the big bottlenecks. The other part is where is the data? And the data is on paper. Even if it's not, do I have the right data scientist to make sense of this data? So while the algorithm have been universal and quite commoditized when looking at tools like TensorFlow, it really feels like we're not there yet because of those expertise bottleneck. Going forward, as people have more awareness about the potential of AI, we're going to see the industry grow very rapidly. Japan was one of the countries that was really behind in terms of AI adoption, looking at uh, several surveys. So there's huge potential. And those are really potential in digital transformation, in predictive maintenance, in marketing analytics, and data analytics in general, like being able to do forecasting. Of course, there are other areas such as uh, robotics that I think Japan has been quite strong and can apply AI going forward. And I, I look forward to that. But I think even just a simple applied machine learning, very basic things, I think we're still far behind other developed countries in terms of adoption. When you think about this in terms of the education awareness aspect that you mentioned, 
do you see that at a specific level in the company? So from the board to the people on the ground, or is this pervasive? The business development and strategy department of big companies are trying to work with startups to better understand, but most of them might not come from engineering background, and therefore they tend to be very skeptical, especially because startups are run by young people who are talking about engineering, and that might like the domain expertise to make sense of the data. For AI to work, you really need to have domain expertise. The problem is really at the business level, and they are working with big consulting firms, like large firms. These firms are there for replacing IT legacy systems, but they might not be your best advisor in terms of how you can build a new business model for your company, I would say. And so it comes also back to what you stated in the paper with AI. You also have the general purpose technology companies where the technology might be very advanced, but which business problem are you going to solve Mm -hmm. to match that advanced technology up with a specific use case? Industrial segment takes some bridging between the two cultures. Absolutely. And I think that right now AI is not really smart. These are just correlations. Even GPT-3, for example, I think this is not really where AI has a future. If we just trust AI right now, I don't think we can really be fully confident that we can solve big problems such as cancer diagnostic and, and so on. AI might be very good with images right now, but for other things such as text or numbers, it really is important to have domain expertise to be able to make sense of what the algorithm is saying. This is something that will require in the future to have educational skills at universities and so on that will be able to teach people to have both skills, both the technology and the business skills. Also, there's very interesting research done at, at MIT by Eric Bjorn about the fact that no job will be fully 100% automated. There will still be some tasks that won't be. So you need to be able to have this type of expertise to have a human in the loop with your AI startup or service or solution. Another more personal question. We obviously picked an industry across the board. So it's finance, it's technology, it's the venture capitalist side where women have been traditionally underrepresented. We hope that you'll be part of changing that. At the same time, you're also then putting Japan on top of that, which in senior positions at the very least has a much lower representation of Japanese professionals. What does it take to change that? Yeah, that's a great question and a big concern of today's society. And uh, I think that, uh, for example, in VC, a few years ago, we had maybe in US 7% of women partners, but now it grew to 13%. It's quite a progress, but we hope that this will be 50-50 in the future. I'm sure that for Japan, the numbers are even lower. And so, as you mentioned, this is quite an issue. The problem also with Japan is that they're quite ranked very low in terms of gender equality by the OECD. So that's not just in VC, it's just uh, in general, I think that there needs to be more education, even in school, in primary school, in high school, about gender equality. Where I come from in France, there is not really like women-only school. It's been really raised the same. There's been no difference. And I'm very grateful for that. 
that definitely gives confidence in the room with men to give my opinion as it is as important as a, as a man. I think in Japan, there is this type of mindset that man is will speak first or will go first. That's one thing. And then in the VC industry, there are some events that are organized by the government. And we also have a global women in VC group that I would encourage any women in VC to join, where we would like to really increase the engagement, the network of women in VC so that they can help each other. And that regardless of the hierarchy, that can be a partner, that can be an analyst, women meeting each other and helping each other, sharing deal flow, sharing career advice is one way, I think, to really help each other grow and and make this parity 50-50 happen. I really look forward to be able to contribute to that as well in Japan. As in Boston, we had a women in VC group, which was really great. And I was able to find more deal flow through that. So I think it's really a matter of helping each other to make us uh, more successful. It's fantastic. It's good for eight-year-olds to have you. They must be really happy about this. Clearly, the Japan question and scare. Somebody like you, who has clearly lots of options in the career path, at some point says the glass ceiling is too low in Japan. It's easy for you to pack up your bags and go anywhere on this planet and find a fantastic job again. So that's the area of competitiveness that Japan needs to develop and realize that for this economy to not fall off the cliff when 40% of the current employees retire in whatever 20, 30 years, it needs to be or needs to become an attractive place for people like you. I think that uh, talking to our foreigners in Japan, there is this issue about tenure, hierarchy, and social pressure, and you need to fit in. Everyone needs to be the same. And it's I can really relate to what you're saying, and that's why we're seeing uh, the macroeconomic impact. I really look forward to that and for more women in, in the workplace to be able to change that because I think that having more diversity of opinion in the boardroom or in, in companies in general will probably help a lot in making this happen. It definitely will. Thank you very much, Sophie. It was a fantastic closure to my week. We're here <laughs> on a Friday early evening, I would say. Fascinating story, fascinating career path, inspiration, I think, for many young people who can look at this and see what's possible and reach for the stars. We'll continue to share you on, wish you all the best with your career here in Japan. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be here and I'm really a big fan of your podcast. It's always great to learn more about fintech in Tokyo, so please keep doing that. We'll do it. Thank you, Sophie.